1879, Alberta, Canada had already been settled by French Canadians for nearly 150 years, and in all that time, no criminal had ever been executed by hanging. But on December 20th of that year, that streak came to an end, as a man was sentenced to death and then hung for a crime so heinous, so unthinkable, that there was no alternative, and a Cree Native American named Swift Runner swung on the end of a rope. It's a bizarre story that begins with Swift Runner himself stumbling out of the forest. Swift Runner was a native of Alberta whose birth name was Kaki C. Kuchin. At six feet tall, he was considered a large man by standards of the time, and he worked for the mounted police as a trapper and expert guide. Eventually, though, he lost that job because of his propensity for violent drunkenness. That same trait would also cause him to be evicted from his tribe. Finally, in 1878, he moved his family, which consisted of himself and his wife, their six children, his mother-in-law, and his brother, into the forest for the winter. In the spring, Swift Runner stumbled out of the forest and into a Catholic mission church where he told a troubling story. The rest of his family, he said, were all dead. You're listening to Myths and Mysteries. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. Indians call him Sasquatch. There are busts of King Tut that also show an elongated skull. Taunting the police, chiding them, daring them to capture him. And finally, he invented a name for himself, Jack the Ripper. Analysis of the grand features suggests that this animal was indeed at least 40 feet long. He could have easily eaten up a man. I expect that we'll keep looking um, from now on until we find him or find out what happened. Inside that little mission church, Swift Runner told priests that his entire family had slowly starved to death, one by one, over the course of the grueling winter. He'd hunted but been unable to find enough food and had been forced to watch his entire family wither away and die. It was a tragic story, to be sure, but the priests didn't buy it. For one thing, Swift Runner seemed to be healthy and in good shape, very much unlike a man who had just suffered through a winter of starvation. For another, they knew several other Cree in the area who had been very successful hunting all throughout the winter. As an expert tramper and guide, it seemed unlikely that Swift Runner could have failed so miserably that everyone in his family would perish. Then there were the nightmares. Swift Runner would frequently wake up screaming in the night. Finally, he allegedly tried to lead some local children away into the forest. It was at this point that the priests notified the authorities of their suspicion that Swift Runner had, in fact, murdered his family. Swift Runner was immediately arrested and ordered to lead the police to his family's forest home. There are different stories about his willingness to cooperate. Some say he went willingly, while some say he tried to mislead them and only cooperated when they plied him with alcohol. Whatever the case was, they eventually did reach the spot, and what they found there was ghastly. First, they found the grave of Swift Runner's son, full of bones. Then, another grave was opened and then another, and another, until there were bones everywhere. 
but these were not the bones of a family who had died of starvation. Some were snapped in half, with the marrow sucked out. Then, a potful of human fat was found. The true horror of the scene finally dawned on the policeman who saw it. Swift Runner hadn't just killed his family, he'd eaten them. here that Swift Runner's story suddenly changed. He admitted that his family hadn't starved to death. True, he had murdered and eaten them, he said, but it wasn't his fault. He'd been possessed by the spirit of the Wendigo, the forest-dwelling monster of Algonquin lore that hungers constantly for human flesh but can never be satisfied. Swift Runner claimed that the Wendigo had come to him and told him to eat his family. At first, he refused. But over time, the Wendigo spirit got inside him and began to control him. His family had not been sacrificed to feed his own hunger, but the Wendigo's. Swift Runner's new story was met with as much disbelief as his old one. The jury at his trial deliberated for only 20 minutes, and he died in the noose on that December day in 1879. The Wendigo was an old an important figure in the beliefs of the Algonquin tribes, and many others as well, although it is called by different names in different places. It's used as a warning against greed, and, mainly, cannibalism. Most Algonquins were against the practice of cannibalism, but there were scattered reports and some documented instances of it occurring. If you were to kill and eat another human, though, you ran the risk of becoming a Wendigo. According to legend, one of the main ways to become a Wendigo was by committing the act of cannibalism. It was said that in doing so, a person would begin the transformation from human into monster, and that the result would be a long lifetime of constant hunger for human flesh. This hunger, however, could never be filled, as it was alleged that a Wendigo would grow larger in proportion to the amount of flesh that it had consumed so that its appetite could never be sated. There are a few other legends concerning the creation and nature of the Wendigo. While many say that a Wendigo is created when a human eats another human and transforms into a beast, others, like Swift Runner, state that the Wendigo already exists as a spirit that tempts men into committing horrific acts. Still other legends say that when a man becomes a Wendigo, he is frozen into the center of a giant being made entirely of ice, with the unfortunate person serving as its heart. The only way to kill such a Wendigo is to get through the ice to the person inside and kill him. Most, however, describe the Wendigo as a tall, dark creature with the appearance of extreme starvation. It is gaunt, its decaying gray skin stretched taut over its bones, and its deep-set eyes are sunken back into their sockets. The creature gives off a pungent odor of death and decay. Whatever the case, there are many attributes of the Wendigo that are nearly unanimous. They are large, they are fast, they are cunning, and they constantly hunger for human flesh.
The legend of the Wendigo is so deeply embedded into the minds of those who believed in it that some native tribes had Wendigo hunters, men tasked with protecting their tribes and communities from attacks by this creature, often by detecting those within their community who were in the process of becoming a Wendigo and eliminating them before they could become a threat. Jack Fiddler was such a man. Like his father before him, Jack Fiddler, whose Cree name was Zawuno Gizigo Gobao, meaning he who stands in the southern sky, was the chief and shaman of the Sucker clan of Cree Native Americans in northern Ontario in the late 19th century and into the first years of the 20th. His position as a shaman meant that Jack was responsible for protecting his people from spells and other supernatural dangers, a task that he was known to excel at. His most important and well-known skill was hunting the Wendigo, and in fact he claimed to have killed 14 of them before the end of his life. Some were supposedly sent by shamans of rival tribes, and some were his own people, who had been overtaken by the Wendigo spirit. Often, Jack would be asked by the suspected Wendigo's family, or even the unfortunate person themselves, to euthanize the person before they could give in fully and become the monster. Jack's clan were one of, if not the, last ones living indigenous and according to their own laws instead of the government's. In fact, it's thought that they may have never seen a white person before, but all that changed when two members of the mounted police came to their village in early 1907. These two officers heard tales of Jack Fiddler's incredible Wendigo hunting prowess and saw an opportunity to bring modern law and order to this superstitious band of natives. They arrested Jack and his brother Joseph for the murder of Joseph's daughter-in-law, Wasaka Pequay, one year prior. Newspapers immediately seized into the macabre details of the case and began printing lurid, sensationalized stories painting the elderly Fiddler brothers as devil-worshipping murderers. An outraged public demanded justice, and the authorities handling the case saw a chance to advance their careers. Jack Fiddler knew what would happen next. One day, he escaped during outdoor exercise and hanged himself. His brother Joseph stood trial, and despite the fact that he and his clan had never known Canadian law, he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. An appeal later granted him freedom, but it was too late. He died in prison three days before the order was received. So Spencer, one of the obstacles that we ran into in preparing for this episode is that there are a lot of different stories and legends about what a Wendigo is and what it looks like and how it's created, but there's not a lot of information other than that, and a lot of our sources just repeated the same things over and over again. So out of the information that we've looked at here, what is it that really jumps out to you? Well, you're right. In discussing it with you and looking over the notes, getting ready to do the show, I had the thought that are discussing this topic could take two minutes or 20 minutes based on the fact that there's not a whole lot of information, two minutes, but that the information that we do have is so different on the inside based on descriptions of the Wendigo, what it does, how to kill it, and so on, 
that it could take 20. The thing that sticks out to me the most with that being the case is the question, where does it come from? With something that is so consistent about some facts, the eating of the human flesh, the overtaking of the person's will, and so on, it's consistent at its core, but in the details that are kind of some of the the less fine points, what it looks like. It has antlers, it doesn't have antlers, it's gaunt, it has long uh, arms and, and stretched fingers, it, uh, you know, cracked lips, it's just a person overtaken by a spirit. When you have something that's so different like that in some ways, but so consistent at its root, it makes me wonder what the origin could be, especially something like the Wendigo that is so old, it's hundreds of years old in its uh, telling and tradition. Where does it originally come from? We can see something being exaggerated and, and changed over time, but what was it at the beginning that started out this tale that was consistent? Where, where did it start? Yeah, that's a really big one for me too, and we really haven't been able to find any sort of definitive starting point which kind of leads into the theory that perhaps it is a cautionary tale that's been handed down of, you know, make sure you don't eat people because this is what will happen. You run the risk of turning into this monster that's always hungry. I, I know I found a story, uh, I think right on the Wikipedia page, of a band of Jesuits that was traveling to the area, and they had previously deputized some of the locals that were living there, these, these Native Americans, and you know they come back like a year later, and they find that their deputies have all sort of gone Wendigo, if you will, and eaten each other. And they're described as pouncing on each other and becoming hungrier the more that they eat. And I think having to be sort of put down. I mean, this is, we're talking 1661. This is three and a half centuries ago. So, you know, it, it has its origin somewhere, but I feel like it's been lost to time and sort of lends itself to being just a cautionary tale. I do think it could be as well, and one thing I had discussed with you earlier is that I tried a little bit to find out where the cautionary tale would come from or why it would be so important to these people groups, if it is a cautionary tale, that they actually create this monster that has terrified people of the Algonquin tribes for hundreds and hundreds of years to prevent them from eating one another. Why would that be when cannibalism is not taboo in some cultures and even in some tribes? Why would that be something that was so very important to them? And the thought of eating or not eating other people, uh, if you should do it or if you should not, and what it might do for you if you do, goes back thousands of years. We see a lot of different cultures and religions that teach one way or another, either uh, even in the Christian Bible or different uh, religions and people groups, you shouldn't ever do this. Do not eat the flesh. Do not drink the blood. And uh, we could see that that might be based on some sort of uh, health issue because we know that eating human flesh does have certain side effects and, and things that it will do to the body. But then there are others that say, do it and it will gain you supernatural power or something else. So, why would it be so important for them to not do it? Is it some sort of teaching that they received? Is it something that was just handed down throughout the ages as one of these uh, religions or viewpoints or beliefs? And I couldn't, I couldn't find anything conclusive, but it made me wonder about that, and, and I thought it was interesting. There's not a lot of cultures that are sort of indifferent on cannibalism. It's either, you know, don't do it, you'll turn into a monster, or it's do it and you'll gain the power of the other person. There's really no culture that I could think of that's just like, ah, 
you know, eat them if you need to. No big deal. Something, too, that I had wondered about was on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, you have these people that are asking Jack Fiddler and other Wendigo hunters, uh, asking him to kill them. You know, they're saying, I am convinced that I am turning into a Wendigo. I'm going to be a danger to everyone. You have to kill me. And I, I, I can't, you know, in my 21st century brain, I can't fathom saying, I'm turning into the supernatural monster. I really want to eat, you know, people. Um, I'm thinking about just eating Steve from accounting all the time. You've, you've got to take care of this before I hurt someone, you know, because you're not going to ask Jack Fiddler to come strangle you with a rope and then burn your body unless you are 110% convinced you are Wendigo, you know, and and I, I just, it makes me wonder, like, what's going through your brain? What are the symptoms that you're experiencing that are convincing you that you need to eat people and that you're a Wendigo, you know, and, and how are you so 100% certain that you will go to Jack Fiddler, having seen what he does, because he reputedly did it 14 times, and say, hey man, you've, you've really got to kill me before I hurt somebody. I can't understand that. Well, in that one guy's defense, we all have a Steve from accounting, and that guy can be a <laughs> jerk. So That's for sure. It really is. The word that comes to my mind is impressive. In our 21st century minds, we see a lot of um, people and people groups with a certain set of beliefs, or maybe not a set of beliefs, maybe just a way that they say that they live their life. But when push comes to shove, they'll do something different. And so the fact that some of the research that I found suggested that entire villages, when faced with starvation during tough winters, the inability to forage and hunt game, they would rather commit mass suicide and, and end it all for for everyone in the village, rather than risk the chance that one of them eat another and become a Wendigo. The willingness that you just talked about to have someone else come in and end your life because you are certain that you are a Wendigo is is a willingness and a consistency and a firm belief that we just aren't used to seeing. And it's something that I can't imagine being able to think that way. It also made me wonder, in a culture where eating someone is so taboo, where this monster is so real, where it would have been a terrifying children's story, something that was talked about regularly if they were so dedicated to it to where they were willing to end their life, how would you know that you were a Wendigo? Would you, you've probably never tasted human flesh before, yet you are 100% certain that just out of the blue you want to eat Steve? Uh, it makes me wonder how, what that would have felt like, how that would have shown itself in someone who was, I guess, familiar with the story and the legend, but most likely had never eaten uh, any part of a human before. And of course, now we have this modern diagnosis of Wendigo psychosis, um, which is basically just a mental condition that, you know, that people suddenly have this desire to eat other people. And it reminds me of something that we talked about a few episodes ago with clinical lycanthropy, which was where people have the belief that they are a werewolf. And I'm wondering, I guess, if believing that you're a werewolf and believing that you're a wendigo are sort of the same thing, if this could be the same condition, just under different names, because people believe in different monsters in different areas. Um, and a lot of cases historically of the Wendigo are just blamed on, okay, it's Wendigo psychosis. It's got to be Wendigo psychosis. And it, 
you know, I, I buy into that, certainly. But I do have my doubts um, just because of the fact that I, I feel like a Wendigo psychosis or a clinical lycanthropy is so rare. You know, I mean, even today when we're obsessed with werewolves and they're in all kinds of movies and TV shows and everything, when do you ever hear about a case of somebody actually acting like a werewolf, you know? And yet there are so many of these reported cases from 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 history gone by over the last few hundred years that I feel like you can't just write all of them off as Wendigo psychosis, do you? I don't think that that seems unreasonable. And I do think that we see the mind is a very powerful tool and it's also very adaptive. We see different behaviors, even with the same diagnosis in the mental health community, even today. So would it be feasible for the mind to have a specific condition and act differently based on the different cultures? Absolutely. I would, I would think so. Uh, this particular disorder, Wendigo psychosis is, I guess, referred to as like a culture bound syndrome or illness. And so I don't see why it wouldn't be reasonable for the mind to act in, in one specific way in one place and another in another place. We've seen uh, documented history of women who either really wanted to be or were terrified of being or thought that they were pregnant, and their body even starts to act as if it is pregnant. Um, you can uh, you can cause yourself a self-fulfilling prophecy by thinking that you might have an issue with your body. Oh man, I have aches and pains. I might have this issue. Well, you're going to continue to have aches and pains because you can talk your body into it because your mind is just that powerful. So in a culture where the Wendigo is so real, if you start to feel weird or if you start to, especially someone who may have a mental illness, may have eaten something they shouldn't have, may have been on, eating on a different diet, exposed to different things, whatever it took, a history of mental illness, they've got this issue and they are surrounded by Wendigo myth. So now they're a Wendigo. I don't think that that, that, that is um, impossible. Thank you for listening to episode 5 of Myths and Mysteries. I hope you enjoyed it, and as always, if you did, you can be a huge help to us by rating and reviewing on iTunes, and of course, subscribing to the podcast if you haven't already. We are, of course, a bi-weekly podcast, and it feels great to get a five-star review after spending two weeks putting an episode together, so thank you to everyone who's left us one so far. We really, really appreciate them. If you're new to the show, you can find all of our previous episodes on iTunes and Google Play or on our website, mythsandmysteriespod.com, which is also the place where you can send us an email with suggestions, criticisms, cheesecake recipes, or anything else you think we should know. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MythsPodcast. Until next time, don't eat anybody. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.